There are no foolish questions, and no man becomes a fool until he has stopped asking questions. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts in England, Rob Annabel and Matt Russell. Oh yeah, baby, Steinmetz. I've never heard of Steinmetz. Have you, Rob? I haven't, no. We, we, we picked Steinmetz because that right at the end of our interview today, which, which is going to take up the bulk of the podcast, we ended up talking about asking questions and how important it was that how, however silly the questions seem to be, that those were the places where most of the really good ideas come from. Yeah, how to encourage people to keep asking silly questions. Carl Sagan used to bang on about it. He used to say that, that something terrible had happened, that high school students don't ask the same questions as their junior school counterparts. Yeah. Something, yeah. something terrible happens at school. But I don't think it is that. I don't think it happens at school. I just think you grow out of asking annoying questions. It might be because your parents get annoyed a little bit. <laughs> I, know I, I know I have on long car journeys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I suppose the, the conversation in the interview coming up uh, also touches on the idea that the the space that you asked that in, the, the culture around it on the internet can potentially uh, suppress that sometimes in the wrong environments as well. That the fear of being shot down in public yeah. can, can cause that. And and also your position within the group as well. If you're all anonymous, then then it makes it easier to ask silly questions because you're not the person carrying the badge saying, I'm supposed to know what I'm talking about. Yeah, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. Isn't that the line? <laughs> that's the, that's the, that's yeah, the classic, well, I definitely isn't it? do know a few people whose dogs do have accounts, especially, especially <laughs> on Facebook. Yeah, they're all on Instagram, being influencers. So, uh, yes, we have Nexus Aurora. They're the, they're the people on today, and uh, we've talked about them six episodes ago on 229, yeah, we should we should explain why I'm back. I'm back because it was it's a continuation of that conversation. Yeah, from that previous episode, exploring the uh, the group that put together the winning entry for the Mars Society Comp last year. Yeah, so it's kind of Mars episode five, part two, if that's a sort of complicated enough. Absolutely. Yeah, we we thought it would only be fair to get the guys who uh, who we spent quite a bit of time talking about to come on and uh, have their say as well. No, absolutely, and we uh, it, it's such an interesting. Such an interesting project. But before we get to that, I thought, here's a very interesting one. Today is the 10th of May, or this is the day that the podcast is coming out. And uh, it's the anniversary of the 1946 71-mile-high non, non-orbital, suborbital flight of a V2 rocket out of White Sands, uh, Von Braun had only arrived in America six months before with his team. But that is the very first time an experiment, an observation, was done from space. So that's uh, 71 miles high. So which definition does that cover? What, what is 100 kilometres in, in miles? Uh, well, it's 62 miles. In, so, yeah, so it, it's, gone over the, it, it's gone over the Kármán line. Right. So, okay. yeah, it is, it's, it's space... By anyone's definition, yeah, even Jonathan McDowell's uh, definition, <laughs> it is it's definitely space. So yeah, but, but but so I think that's a that's a pretty groundbreaking. And and von Braun had been there six months before. 
Yeah, so was he a part of that project? Yeah, so he was a part of that project. Yeah, they they right. I mean, yeah, it was his, you know, they brought the V2s. This was a V2 that was actually built in Nazi Germany that they had you know captured and brought back over, modified. It was the third one that they'd attempted to fly. Uh and it was the first one that worked. And so, you know, this was, you know, this is this this is the start of, you know, all those things like Mercury and and Apollo, yeah. everything, isn't it? Really, that's the the very first tentative steps into. Yeah, it's just interesting to think about that. It's what a short time scale that is. I, I don't know enough about the von Braun story, the, the details of those early years, but to to be brought over and just be put to work immediately, effectively. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I don't think there was any Crack messing on. around. I think, I think, I think everyone knew that that was that's the next big thing, yeah. and von Braun yeah. was the only person who would managed to build a suborbital rocket at that point. Yeah, so you know the the, the political machinations around whether that, that, we, that we might go through today over questions about defection and the politics around it just brushed aside. <laughs> Absolutely Here he brushed is, aside. Put him to like, work. Just get him to work. Well, and all and all the other people that had worked with him as well. It's not just von Braun. It's you know it's a whole yeah whole elite team elite of, of of Nazi <laughs> scientists. Yeah. Uh, yeah, amazing. But uh, yeah, it's also it would also have been the forty sixth birthday of Cecilia Payne, or who was later to be called Cecilia Payne Kaposhkin, who of course famously, um, well, a very famous astronomer who kind of realised that the sun wasn't made from the same stuff as the planets and was hydrogen and helium, and you know. A legend, astronomy legend, Cecilia Payne Kaboshin would have had a forty-sixth birthday on the day all that was happening. Right. That's pretty cool. Okay, it's a it's a, yeah. a moment in history. So uh, yeah, Nexus a Nexus Aurora because this is such a long interview, we should maybe get post haste to it. Yeah, let's press on. In this interview, there are parts of what they talk about that are very much connected to Starship, right? Yeah, I suppose we better mention something <laughs> called SN15. Yeah, SN15 did, of course, as as virtually every single one of our listeners, unless they've somehow managed to um, be completely away from their normal news feeds, managed to land. It managed to land, and it's a, yeah. it's it was pretty impressive. It, it Incredible. Did it, in, it did it in a way that looked very very assured. It was a very assured sure-footed landing i thought it did it did and and the timing of that halt on the hills of the announcement about hls as well <laughs> you know it's, it's good isn't it for him to, to to nail that that process having uh it just been announced that they'd won the contract for the human lander system yeah well it's it's kind of on hold that human landing system you know that don't you that that uh the other two have complained and so now it's kind of I knew the complaint, but it's uh, but it's complaint so much to actually yeah they, they, put it, it on hold. yeah it puts it on hold for a little bit. Really? Not that I don't think I don't think that that in any way deters Musk at all because he's doing it anyway. No. Yeah, it's nice to yeah. have the two billion, but we're doing it anyway. I think is his uh, kind of. Uh, but are there are there many direct, just thinking about the, the the physics of it? Are there many direct comparisons really in terms of what he, what he learns from 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 the belly flop procedure and landing it on Earth? It's a Completely different environments, aren't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't have much. Well, I mean, there, there must be a lot of data you get from flying raptors, landing them safely, and then taking them back to McGregor yeah. or wherever, wherever they go to to open them up and see 
exactly what is going on when you fly them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that, that you know, there's so much data. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Falcon 9 is so advanced is because if you can land a rocket, you can actually learn loads more about it. Yeah, yeah, take it apart, take a look at it. Yeah. So, so just, the, just the act of bringing something back, flame end down successfully. Yeah, I suppose yeah, it's, is very, enough. it's very useful. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, yeah. I'm still not convinced he's not going to try and fly that one again, though. Just, just, yeah. just to because there's the more. Well, there's more data to be. There's more data, isn't there, in in flying mm. something twice? See, yeah. see yeah. what the you know rattle it out. And of course, I think we've just had a tenth flight of a Falcon Nine as well, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did. He is smashing out the achievements. But I think one of the most interesting things about that HLS proposal, if I've understood it right, is is that the scale of the bit of kit that he's that he's proposing to land potentially puts puts the thrusters right at the top of the the rocket, doesn't it? And mm -hmm. might be the solution to the to the to the dust cloud problem. Well, they, well, I think they have to do that. They they have mm. to they have to have for the moon landing. Yeah. I, I have to say that the, the the fact that that system has to be so completely different does make me feel very safe with the with the bet that I have with Eric Berger that I have to yes. eat his book yeah. if they land on the moon in 2024. I, yeah, I am I definitely not worried about that one. Yeah, I think you're right. It's not like he can he can point to SM15 and go, "Well, look, we'll just do it like that." <laughs> it's, no, it's not quite the same. No, move, and it? you know, and I'll be happy to eat the book if it is because it will be the most phenomenal. It'll be the most phenomenal day. Humans landing on Mars in 2024 in a starship. Wow, I, I'm I'm happy to I think wash I it think down a with, a, us, with a pane of glass. Yeah, I think there'll be a bunch of us happy to join you. To be honest, <laughs> a chapter each. Yeah, something. yeah, yeah. Maybe that we can do a Discord eating of the. Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So news in for the for the rest of the Discord uh, server members. You've got a chapter each. <laughs> <laughs> and talking of Discord. Um, um, during the interview, you might be able to hear a boop, and that was our, our our latest Discord member, Adam James French. There we go. Welcome. Yeah, welcome. You hear yourself literally joining <laughs> as we were interviewing uh, Nexus Aurora. Uh, so that's awesome. And uh, obviously, anyone else who wants to uh, come and join the gang and possibly co-host a show, hey Rob. So that absolutely uh, is uh, go to interplanetary.org.uk or patreon.com forward slash interplanetary if you, if you want to check it out. But uh, in the meantime, shall we uh, have a listen to this interview? Let's do it. Akutai, the interplanetary podcast, putting the ace back into space. Rob and myself are joined on the podcast by Nexus Aurora. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. Instead of going through me uh, pronouncing everyone's names wrong, is it is it okay if you sort of go through, introduce yourselves, and let us know a little bit about your background and and how you're involved in in Nexus Aurora? Sure. I suppose I'll start. Um, I'm I'm Sean Vessels. I'm an architect in South Africa. Um, how did I get involved in Nexus Aurora? I got involved in Nexus Aurora on Reddit when I saw somebody posted a building for Mars, which I thought would never ever work. So I did what you do on the internet. I wanted to prove them wrong. And uh, now I've been on Next Aurora for a year and a half, still proving people wrong, I suppose, or trying. So that's how I got involved. Uh, uh, Cohen, 
Yes, that's almost right. Oh. That's great. Uh, <laughs> yes. See, I, I, so, that's, that's uh, why I was hoping you were going to do it yourself. I, I, yeah, no, I, I was waiting I'm for you to pronounce I'm my paranoid first name. about people's names. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good. It's good. Uh, so my name is uh, Koen Kevel in Dutch. Uh, so I'm from the Netherlands. Uh, thank you for having us. Um, I used to be an architect. Uh, I was trained as an architect, uh, but now I'm uh, full-time in politics, um, local politics for my city. Uh, city council, which I'm uh, a leader of a local political party, um, which is also active uh, nationally. Um, yeah, I started uh, Nexus Aurora a week after the original creators started it, or a few weeks after, also through Reddit. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I was really, really interested in this idea of the one million people city uh, on Mars. And uh, because it is such a big concept, uh, not only the architecture part, but everything that has to do with creating a new civilization as a whole. And that's what we also try to uh, talk about in our uh, complete uh, design uh, for that city. Uh, and that intrigued me a lot. That's why I was there. And Cameron? Yeah, uh, I'm Cameron Ruff. I, uh, I'm just about to finish up an aerospace degree in the US. I also joined from Reddit. Um, I think I might have even seen uh, Sean's designs appearing somewhere on Reddit and then wanting to get involved with that and especially the uh, all the extra engineering aspects of, of bringing humans to be a, a multi-planetary species and since then we've I've been there for a year and a half I worked with the transport division uh, and now we're working on some uh, fun robotics projects for a uh, Mars analog mission at the end of the year. I was really fortunate that uh, Rob put me in touch with this piece of work because Rob himself obviously is an architect and saw some real value in the in your submission to the uh, Mars Society, which you went on and won. And we talked about that submission in podcast two hundred and twenty nine, I think it was, which is only about six weeks ago. Did you did you manage to hear what we said about <laughs> about your project? Uh, yeah, we did actually. Um... It was actually it was actually nice nice hearing you guys uh, say good things about our project, <laughs> um, and it was it was also clear that um, especially Rob like you understood the the actual problem that we were trying to solve, uh, which is uh, as we've mentioned, uh, it's just it was more than the technical problem. It's actually solving the human problem, which is the the biggest issue I believe uh, still. I mean. Um, so yeah, it was really nice actually hearing you guys' uh, opinions, and I think you guys were spot on there. Right. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed our, our review. We certainly enjoyed talking about it and exploring your proposals, which were very well presented and got across those ideas very clearly. And uh, I think it, it, it had. I'd looked through many of the shortlisted entries, um, but yours really stood out because it really chimed with things that I'd hoped to achieve with some early ideas that I'd had for. A, for a concept for that submission. Clearly the mistake that I made was not spending enough time on Reddit where you were for the sounds of it all, all met because I'm in the middle of lockdown and working away on ideas on my own and really needed a team, uh, which is clearly the, uh, the the success that you guys have putting together a group of people and a collaboration. Uh, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that around how, how the project grew, how it's become uh, so strong with so many members uh, and how you manage that process. So tell us about, about the Nexus Aurora group then now. Yeah, what I what I can say about that is that it is really ups and downs, and uh, what we have uh, called big freezes of our community have also happened for short periods of time. For example, right after we handed in our Mars Society uh, design for one million people city on Mars, 
a lot of people were like, okay, so now what? Because that was the whole goal of our group. So it was really hard to keep people interested. And uh, it it was that was the first big freeze. And the other one was after we heard that we uh, really could actually present our designs uh, because that was, uh, I think, a month or even two months uh, after we handed in our proposal, our 20-page report. And then we were really excited again, heating up uh, our whole community uh, with, uh, uh, let's say, dozens of people who are really actively contributing to the final presentation, which is great, uh, because even though your community is maybe hundreds or even a thousand people like we are right now, you always only a small percent of those are really doing a lot of the actual work. And that's maybe 5% or even less sometimes. So we are really happy that people were really um yeah um contributing a lot again and uh after we had that presentation and even won that competition then still a lot of people were like okay so now what and what is the next step so we're really looking for an answer to that uh, question ourselves and um what is also interesting is that uh one of the original creators of nexus aurora uh, adrian moisa who is a space instructor on our discord uh, which you might have heard of uh he was really the one pushing for a lot of it in the first half up to the moment that we handed in our 20-page report. But he was on to other bigger things. He's creating a new type of software for collaboration, specifically, typically a little bit like Discord uh, is as well, um, which is really cool. But that meant that someone else had to pick up uh, where he left off. And uh, the people who are in this podcast right now, uh, so uh, Sean Cameron and uh, myself, have been chosen by the community to be the new leaders of Nexus Aurora itself, which was a process of sort of a new type of democracy in itself, because we wanted to have um, a multi-core, uh, what we call it, a core uh, leadership, um, which is also maybe interesting because that's something that we needed to learn ourselves as well, because we saw the weakness of a single leader who can do something else with uh, his time, uh, which is uh, completely understood. It's a volunteer project anyway, uh, but that also has its limits uh, for the for a community project like this. So we wanted to make sure that that would not happen again. We talked about it a lot and we had a vote with the most active community members. And that's where we are right now. Was there any, I mean, that's really super interesting. Was there any um, other societies or other well, what in fact, what what was the basis of your model? How did you how did you come to that kind of uh, model of leadership? It's it, Nexus Roar has been a really, uh, in every single way, a, a living project. It, in the way we organize it, in the way that we've decided to lead it or form ourselves, it's really evolved over time. And we didn't really have any basis to start, if I remember correctly. Um, as throughout the entire project, not only uh, now, but even while we're doing the Mars City State competition, we changed and iterated how we did projects a lot. Um, in the beginning, we it was like a free-for-all. It was very much an incubator within the, the Discord server that was being run. And every project got an idea and every project then got a channel and, and progressed. And then we then split off into two servers. We then came back to one server. And then we ended up in the iteration where we are today, where we have a single server of more highly focused projects. And so while we've done that, we have evolved uh, alongside other groups over time, or we've had groups that split off like a, uh, the Humanity and Beyond. Um, we've had people like the Futurist Foundation have reached out to us as well because they've seen what we're doing. And it's kind of uh, just a, a big group of people, a big community of communities 
um, that are trying to figure out how to do it correctly. And so what we've been able to do is talk to some of these other communities and, and potentially work with them to share members and to share what works and what doesn't work when it comes to effectively running a community of volunteers. Have you, have you had any interaction or discussion with people uh, in and around the traditional aerospace engineering sector about project management, about team structure and, and sort of team scale in relation to what you've achieved? And has there been any sort of discussion or reflection on how it, uh, how it compares to uh, to the sector and, and wider business? Not, not specifically uh, aerospace companies. Um, and what I also feel is that what we are doing is really impossible to compare to um, yeah, standard practice, I would say. And that is actually the quality uh, of what we are doing as well. So if we started to go to Boeing, Lockheed Martin, whatever, it's first of all, it's really different uh, because of the scale. If you have, as you know, uh, like 150, I think is about the limit of people, uh, the amount of people that can self-organize very efficiently, right? That's like uh, in a lot of the literature. and. Even though we are with a thousand people on our Discord server, in practice, we are with 50 to 100 people because those are the people doing the work and those are the people that I actually really know. Uh, the other 900s, I don't know all their usernames and who those people are. Uh, but at this moment, we can self-organize. And that's actually also very effective and efficient um, at this time, uh, which is very organic, as Cameron said. And I agree completely with that. Um, so what, we, what, what our main... Uh, difficulty will be or challenge uh, for the upcoming period of time is how do you scale up to hundreds of projects even if if people are interested in joining while keeping that same mentality and we try to always look at companies who have done that um, effectively and it seems like SpaceX is one of those companies that have maintained that sort of startup mentality almost uh, and let's do it if you have a good argument we're going to go for it uh, we Take as uh, use as few managers as possible, as little bureaucracy as possible. Let's do it. If it's a good idea, let's go. And that's something we try to keep in our community as much as possible. At this moment, it's possible, but the question is, how do we scale up? And that's something that we need to learn ourselves. And I think that is the time exactly that we need to start talking to companies who have done that successfully. I'm reading books about it now, but uh, I think it's also a good idea, uh, Rob, uh, to start talking to companies who have done this successfully indeed. It's interesting to reflect on uh, on that comparison you just made, for example, with SpaceX, because, of course, uh, one of the things that's often cited in discussing that business is uh, how often Musk talks about being both the chief engineer and the chief financial officer, and those usual tricky decisions just get made in his head. So uh, perhaps they remain agile because it, it's not quite the democracy that, that you guys are striving for. So <laughs> what's... What's interesting about the setup that we've tried to do is um, Next Aurora is, uh, you can see more Next Aurora as a breeding ground where a whole different projects happen. But within each project, there's different leadership structures. So there are a lot of projects that, um, that uh, we've got one project called Red Stratus, for example, and they've been doing tremendously. They're active, they're busy on, on a weekly basis. I, I've got very little idea what goes on there. Um, because they've self-organized within that structure. 
and how they integrate with Next Aurora is they feed off the users that have similar interests that jump between projects. So a lot of people have interest in multiple projects and they move between these, these different environments. Um, I believe, I believe it, Google at one stage, I'm not sure how they work now as Alphabet, but I believe Google had a similar structure at, at one point where you no employer was fixed to a specific project, then they could move around. Their position in the company was fluid. Uh, the idea is that you you invest more where you've got passion, um, opposed to having to work there because you have to work there. Um, and and I think that's pretty much what is keeping us alive at the moment because nobody's getting paid to do what we do on Next Aurora. And some people are, I mean, myself included, Kun especially, he's spending lots. Of, well, actually, I, I want to. I can't really mention names because a lot of a lot of people are spending hours and hours and hours on Next Aurora every week. No one's getting paid. And it it leaves a bit of a trouble, difficult spot for us in some situations because there are certain tasks that need to be done which aren't fun necessarily, but they have to get done to get the organization working. Uh, how do you how do you keep that going? And, and that's a difficult question that we have to answer. Fortunately, we've got people that are very invested that are prepared to do these tasks, um, even though there is no immediate reward to them. Um, but most of Next Aurora is run on passion. It's it's it, we, we can't pay for for passion. We can't get somebody to say, listen, uh, we want you to stick on this project and do nothing but this, and we'll give you cash. Uh, that that's the way the world usually works, and that's the, probably the biggest difference between looking at aerospace engineers or any traditional company and what we are doing is we're asking people to do fairly detailed work um, for free, uh, and and they're not necessarily going to get any reward. The reward is doing the work. Um, so that's that's a bit different. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I I really do like those kind of passion clubs, though. I mean, there's you know you could you could say that about various societies that that are built on people coming together with a, a sort of set of passions and and wanting to kind of be involved in a community. But how do you stop that? from dissipating too widely because well, I, I must admit I was surprised when I went onto your discord um, server thinking it was just going to be about your Mars city and then finding actually it's this it's this vast place with loads of projects going on and lots of different sort of thinking how do you how do you stop how do you stop the community essentially running away with itself and becoming too nebulous full of passionate ideas but essentially dissipating? One of, one of the basic things that I think is important is to have at least one common goal. And that's something that um, I push for a lot also within the community to keep talking about that. Uh, because um, otherwise, if you say, for example, we are a space community only, that is so broad that you get a lot of people who start building rocket companies and whatever. Uh, that's It is possible, but you want to narrow it down at least slightly. And what brought us together was, in this case, Mars colonization or settlement. And um, what we therefore put as our, um, what do you call that, uh, mission statement, sorry, or goal, um, is that we want to make a life multiplanetary. Um, so for humanity to not only go to Mars, but even further or start at the moon is also fine. And we might later in this talk uh, have a discussion about uh, even a low Earth orbit station, which is also reaching for the stars and humanity leaving Earth and um, yeah, uh, taking a step in the direction of becoming multiplanetary. And that is um, 
at least a way to get some focus within our community. Um, so you have to pass at least that test that is clearly related to that. And then if you have passion, as Sean clearly says, uh, then uh, you can start a project. And what I would like to say and add to that uh, is that uh, I think Adrian, uh, one of the people who started Nexus Aurora, he compared it with a brain. And what I like about that comparison is that the more neurons get fired over time, and that is the same as people putting passion and time and effort and chats in this case in the Discord uh, in that project, um, the more people get attracted to it, the stronger the project becomes. And uh, yeah, the more you will see of that project everywhere. And in that case, I personally really love the idea of um, Nexus Aurora as a brain that has a um, project within it that gets stronger over time. I think, and I think that's one of the issues we face as well, right, is how do we uh, foster a lot of passion in the projects and how do we get a lot of people to come in with that passion but not let it run away into something that's a crazy mess? And that's also something that we've had to evolve over time um, working briefly with two Discord channels um, where one was an incubator where we just let it run wild. Um, and then any of those projects that seemed to actually gain some traction, we moved over to a more uh, you know, streamlined server. And what we're finding, I think, continually is that Discord is a great place for discussion and it does foster a lot of passion and a lot of uh, discussion for projects. And then the harder part is then to keep that passion and then allow it and and but still constrain it into that that mission goal that we've set in order to produce you know usable results out of that and that's why that's the difference between us and a place like SpaceX is we have to be a lot more democratic about it because you know we're not paying people uh, essentially to do what we're telling them we need to give them the option of what they want to do and then try to kind of steer it in in the right direction so that it still accomplishes our mission goal um and so that's what we're offering you know is is a place where you can communicate with like-minded people towards a more common mission goal that we've set where we can support you we can provide a place for your project we can even you know potentially provide funding to make that reality but that's one of the the main things we continue to uh develop and experiment with so if when you give people options like that uh, are you finding that there are particular themes or particular um characters or people or backgrounds that are that, that are appearing on a lot the, of architects on apparently yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> i guess what i was that's what i was interested in to a certain extent yeah. um but the projects that, no they're, they're quite, quite varied um from the mars society competition we came out of that and we currently run a, a couple of projects one of which is uh for the mars desert research station that was one that we were at actually approached by the Mars Society to develop some uh, projects for, but some of the projects that have come out of our members themselves are the, the, the Red Stratus, the State of the Game, um, the, the Orbital CAN station, those are all community made and they vary widely from anything from a space-based board game over to uh, 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 space stations for Mars and, and Earth. So it's, it's a very big range. Um, which is great because it means that people can be passionate from many areas and walks of life and still contribute something that does fall under that mission goal. So what what's the best way that people can get in, involved? And is there a type of person that you feel as though is missing that you would like to kind of sort of get your notes? Oh, we could really do with more of that, that, that. But how, yeah, I mean, what's the best way to get involved with it? Yeah, or a part of the world. Is there a particular part of the world that you don't have input from culturally? 
Uh, well, th those are good questions. Uh, so firstly, uh, we actually have a channel on Discord and that says choose your skills. So we can also tag people based on their skills. So we need particular help with a certain skill set. And then you see uh, that we have we have chosen about 15 different types of knowledge and skills that uh, people can have. And you see that um, over 100 people uh, have chosen students, uh, right? Uh, because they feel that they are not really masters of any kind of skill. But um, our economics section of the Mars Society 20-page um, report was done by uh, an econom uh, a student uh, who is now living in Abu Dhabi, I think, but he's from South Korea. And he was great at uh, at this economics. And um, a lot of people we need to sort of convince that even though you're 17 years old or 22 years old and you're not uh, Elon Musk yourself, yes, you can contribute. And that is the, the great thing. Um, but if you're asking what kind of people are we missing at this time, um, I would say diehard uh, engineers uh, in terms of material science, uh, and uh, people who know structural engineering and are willing to do the actual calculations that we need right now, because we're getting at that stage with some projects, that it is really important that do you need two millimeters or four millimeters thick aluminum in this project, because it's going to weigh half, <laughs> that's going to help us. Uh, so, yeah, uh, but we try to solve these kinds of problems by uh, getting into uh, talks with software companies who can help us uh, to provide hopefully a little bit more affordable than market prices, uh, great software that we can use to collaborate all around the world and do these calculations with, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and uh, to come back to the first question, how can people get involved? Yeah, uh, we have a Discord server. Uh, we have uh, mainly Reddit as a way to communicate, a lot of other social channels as well where you can follow us. So anytime that you Google Nexus Aurora, uh, you will find uh at least our Reddit page. And uh, over there, you can find a, a button towards our Discord, which you can join right away. But what's interesting in terms of uh, the people that that we attract is I've, I've discovered, oh, we've known this from a while ago, but it, it's made very clear as time goes on is the projects choose the people. Um, instead of people choosing the project, which is a bit of a weird way of saying it, but with, with the Mars Society, the the million person city state design challenge was interesting because it was extremely broad topic, especially the way we were running it. Um, we had politics, we had uh, discussion, we had like hours and hours of discussions on timekeeping on Mars. We had uh, agriculture and medicine and administration. It, it covered everything, every aspect of life. Because of that, we could get almost any person involved. Like literally anybody could come in and there was a space for them. The project chose the people and the project allowed everything. Now, we've got a bunch of different projects in Aurora, and each project is focused around certain type of people. And a lot of these projects have subcategories. Um, one of the bigger projects, one of the more active ones at the moment is the Orbital CAN. And it's got subcategories because we, we want to build a space station on... In, in orbit at uh, with a completely different business model that what's completely happening at the moment. And it's got different aspects, which have got nothing to do with mechanical engineering and aerospace engineering, even though it's mostly a mechanical and aerospace type of project. Um, we've also got um, uh, uh, one of the projects, which is moving a bit slowly at the moment, but it's the architectural hand guide. And that's attracted, for example, the Mars Society um, students division, where 
it's again broad topics in terms of what are the principles behind building things on another planet, which often has got less to do with um, of engineering, sometimes got nothing to do with architecture. Um, the the topic around radiation, for example, is more medical issue than than an engineering issue. So the type of people who want are generally people that are interested and passionate about the topic. Um, and there are projects for them and we can create new projects for people as well. Yeah, what, what I'd like to add to that is that literally any skill set can be made valuable on our server. And that sounds weird because you would say like, no, you have to be technically really great at uh, contributing uh, on our server. But if you are even great at website building or just in general communication, um, you're a journalist, you can start writing a magazine about all the things that we're doing and you are really contributing really, really well because spreading this message and getting more people involved, like um, we all got involved through Reddit because someone took the time to make that post and to tell us about our Discord channel that you would never have found otherwise. Those communicators, for instance, are of vital importance, as important as the engineers, even though they might have no technical skill sets at all. And that's what I find, find fascinating myself because, the, for example, the econo economist or the psychologist or the biologist or uh, the journalist, all of them are as vital to the end goal um, uh, yeah, as anyone else. Uh, and, that, and that's really weird because if you have a space company, why would you have uh, someone who has studied psychology or generally um, biology, for instance? That's strange, right? Because uh, it's not really the first thing that you think about when you think about a space company. But for us, it's actually vital for our success because we try to approach things in an all encompassing way um, and we need all of the people who are interested in trying to help make uh, humans a multiplanetary species we give them that chance that's basically what we are trying to achieve and that's also why we work open source and in this kind of democracy that we try to find out ourselves to be honest on, on the open source question do, do you have any concerns about the platform you use in terms of a proprietary tool and ownership of that Data and information is a lot of knowledge on that Discord server, isn't it? I confess, I, I don't know myself. Well, who, who, who owns Discord? Uh, Microsoft. Oh, like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they are, Microsoft um, walked away from those talks recently. Ah, okay. Yeah, they Not were yet. in talks. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Uh, what is interesting to say about that is that um, we actually tell all people on our Discord, if there's anything worth saving, put it in our Google Drive, which you can always say is owned by Google, but at least it's in the cloud and we have also a local backup ourselves. Um, but you see that we had this problem in the past that on Discord, we had a lot of very high level discussions and we went into really a lot of depth. And then three weeks later, we had the same discussion again because there were or there were new people or people forgot or didn't read it. So uh, what we now say to everyone as much as possible is like, okay, so you come in our server, we see Discord maybe more like WhatsApp or another messaging service. And then if something is important enough, we put it in the documentation or if it's renderings or images or 3D models, you put it in the Google Drive. Otherwise, assume it's going to be gone in a few weeks. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that is really important as well that we learned uh, from our own experience, I think. Well, we've, we've worked with uh, projects in order to, to try to cater to 
the the style in which they want to set up. For example, um, I work primarily with community management over in our current Discord server. And one of the things we've had to, to work around is the potential of uh, protecting IP. And so for one of our projects, we've uh, used the tools that Discord provides, which is really handy in order to require that members uh, can get access to the top level channels of that project. But before they get into the real development stuff, um, they'll need to be manually approved, which means that potentially they'll sign an NDA or they need to uh, implicitly or explicitly agree to a set of terms and conditions. So Discord is actually really friendly to being set up in a way that allows us to uh, provide open projects and more closed off projects based on what the uh, current showrunners of that project uh, desire. That seems important. So, so it's not that everything is part of the commons as such. No, exactly. And we, I think we promote, and I, I think Hun and, and Sean will agree with this, I think we want to promote open sourcing as much as possible. But at, again, as part of being an, uh, a community of volunteers, we can't really restrict things too much or we don't want to uh, put a hamper over people's passion and creativity. So we try to keep things open source and we encourage that. But if, if people want to go in a more, more closed-off route, we'll also try to cater to that as well. And it, that doesn't mean people can't join it. People can absolutely join it. It's an open project in that respect. It just means you can't join our Discord one day, scoop up all the information you want, and then you know leave an hour later. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that does raise a really huge point, doesn't it, with Nexus Aurora in terms of at what point does it become a commercial entity? It, you know, because there's a big difference between sort of blue sky thinking and, and coming up with ideas and, and projects. And then suddenly if hardware's being made or something like that, ha, ha, <laughs> as a community, because you, you kind of are a community with, with you know, a very loose leadership ship structure where does that where does that suddenly go how does that how does how do you envisage that sort of panning out so one thing that we've done um and i think this also kind of needs to be made clear is so next aurora is the community within that community are these projects and each project has different leaders and um the one project that Cameron's talking about that's got more lockdown systems is that they are on their right to commercialization. That's one of their, one of their goals. They, they want to create this, this uh, product that they want to sell. And that's why we've given them opportunity to lock down to a certain degree. Being part of the community allows them to take resources from the community and share resources, which is really important because uh, there's not loads and loads of money lying around uh, or people. Um, and ideally, if any if any single project, because Next Aurora doesn't own anything, but the projects might, and the projects then can at one point when they've come to the point where they want to commercialize, start locking down, identify the people that are are leading those projects, and start taking an audit of what's actually there, um, and that's okay. Uh, it's it's if if anybody wants to commercialize, that's a good thing as long as it promotes the overall cause, which is which is um, open source, well, mainly space colonization. And the open source part is how do we get there? Um, a lot of projects we've also identified that in a non-open source way that don't make sense, uh, especially where we are at the moment. And open source is actually a very powerful tool to be able to do a lot more um, than, than having to, to close down the whole system. I would also add to that that um, if your comp competitors for some of our projects uh, are governments, 
this whole idea of uh, patenting or closing stuff off isn't really going to work. I think uh, Musk said that in the past uh, before. Uh, you have to just improve fast enough uh, so others can't <laughs> can't catch up. That might be a, a good way to look at it. Um, but also, we had this discussion actually for the Mars city-state uh, design uh, because we had a lot of what we thought were really cool ideas. And when we were like halfway there, people were saying like, oh, yeah, this is really nice. We should really close off our server because other uh, one of the other 100 plus teams are going to find our server. They're going to steal all our good ideas and then we're going to lose. And then we said, no, we're actually going to open it up even more. Actually, we're going to lecture on all the lessons that we have learned before we enter the actual competition. We have made YouTube videos about how you should do architecture in our minds uh, on Mars, for instance. Um, and it actually attracted more talented people. And that is, I think, a really important lesson for us, because if we would have said there, we're going to close it off because we want to protect everything that we have done then fewer people would have been attracted even halfway through the project itself. And we would have had a way worse project in the end. The fact that we were open in this case, and the fact that we want all people all around the world to be able to contribute to making life multiplanetary, that almost requires this open mentality. And we have seen the qualities of that, even though it's very hard to manage. And I have to say this as well, we, as a core, as we call it, the three of us as leadership of Nexus Aurora, chosen by the community, we feel that if we stop working on this community together with council and all the other people that are in it, in it for two weeks, the project could be dead. It's really fra fragile. So we have to be on our toes. We have to keep working on it, have to rekindle the fire as it were uh, so there's always conversation and all of that so it's really fragile now and we want to grow to a point that it is not that fragile anymore but it is also a really a balance that we try to keep uh, maybe now's a good yeah. time to talk about sort of some of the outcomes and future projects then and uh, you've got an event coming up in dubai believe can we tell us a bit about that and uh, and the orbital can project in particular is something we're quite interested in so perhaps we can uh, we can talk about that but one last question on, on the Mars society competition before before we finish that um how did you distribute the prize money uh, well, Cameron, Cameron is uh, is our uh, chief financial officer chosen by the community uh, maybe he can explain a little bit uh, uh, he's passed the book Cameron it's on you <laughs> sure I'll take that up then um so that was actually, it kind of ties into how we also run our projects because immediately after the Mars Society, um, it was kind of a, a project vacuum. Like we we knew everyone was super excited. We were riding high on, on winning the competition and we realized that we didn't want to stop there. The Mars Society competition was not where we wanted to leave things off. We we knew we had you know talent. We knew we had momentum. We wanted to keep going. Um, and so after a couple of weeks, we kind of realized that we'd like to take this, this funding and, and put it towards more projects. So what we ended up doing um, is because Adrian decided that he, he would like to go and work on this, uh, this platform, which we're hoping in the future will also be able to benefit us. And I think it's being modeled around how uh, all the lessons learned in developing our community. So what we've ended up doing is we've done a, a, a specific split where some of that funding has gone towards funding that platform that's being developed. And then the other funding has been put aside um, in under the, the Nexus Aurora um, 
registration, which has been registered in the US, and we're going through uh, registration as a nonprofit entity currently. And so what our effective plan is for that is as part of our sponsorship of projects, as part of our support of ongoing development, um, we're setting up a, or we have set up a system where we can fund projects in order to help bring them to life and, and actually make them real and develop hardware and software and, and, and buy equipment. So to answer your question in a short way, basically we've set those funds aside in order to fund uh, deserving projects within NA. And we've tried to set up a few channels in, in that way that we can bring that those funding back in, in order to fund additional projects and try to grow our ability to support more and more. That's fantastic. No, I fully expected that, that sort of answer after the conversation we've had. <laughs> but, I, but I'll raise it because, of course, when you see the number of people involved in the project, which was such a powerful thing, and then to see the, uh, mm-hmm. the prize money afterwards, you know, was it a dollar each oh, that was, sort of thing? And it was, yeah, well, it was great to see how unanimous the community was yeah. in wanting to do this, in, in how everyone said, I'm not, I'm not in it for the money. I want us to put take that money and put it towards... Uh, the costs of upkeep and and keep going with this thing. I want to see money go into projects. I want to see upkeep the website, you know, and it's amazing to see not only the community come together to to win the competition, but also then to want to keep going because it's not about any one member, but it's about our overall combined goal. That's really interesting. So yeah, we've got these, we've got these other projects, like you said, you, you, you finished, you finished off one project and opened up a whole new and you're, you're presenting at the IAC this year, which is, and, I, and I'm assuming this is one of the major projects on the server now and this, this, this orbital can uh, project. So uh, who wants to, who wants to kind of give us the background about how that, how that came about and what exactly it is and how it differs from other, from other projects that I, I guess are, are like it. Yeah, uh, the interesting thing is that it's a, a good example of how the server itself evolved because um, after winning the Mars competition, uh, we had still a lot of people who were interested and we thought that we would need to split up into different servers. Um, so each project would have their own Discord server. That was the idea. So we had about 20 different Discord servers, all with their own group of enthusiasts around a certain topic. So uh, Sean uh, started uh, the Beyond Earth architecture uh, server, or he led it at least. Um, and uh, that was more focused about architecture on the moon or even in uh, in orbit uh, or on Mars. Um, but we were so spread out and so spread so thin uh, that, yeah, we felt uh, it was really hard to reach all people to create that creative chaos that you have when you are reading stuff that you know nothing about but want to know more of and you're talking to other people about it and um, and that was happening a lot when we have like when we had about six seven hundred people in a server talking to each other about all of these projects and now we were spread out so I felt this and I was like okay so maybe beyond earth architecture will be our new central server probably all servers thought that uh, but uh, um i think together with sean i uh, started the orbital can um project uh because we saw a possibility to create a large scale space station that could be launched on a next generation starship in this case uh, so it can be eight meters diameter to fit inside the nine meter diameter uh, starship uh, of spacex and since they have at least a hundred ton of payload capacity we saw a lot of possibilities for a way cheaper space station so in our earliest uh, calculations we saw that um 
The ISS currently is about 900 or 950 cubic meters of pressurized volume, which is usable by the astronauts, which is about seven astronauts on average that they use that, that volume. Um, and we are thinking like, okay, so Elon Musk and SpaceX are building a Starship that can that has a fairing payload capacity and a fairing size of about a thousand cubic meters itself. That's crazy, right? So we needed tons of missions to build this ISS. It's, it has cost us 160 plus billion US dollars, I think in 2012 were the, the last uh, estimates. So surely one launch of such a space station in this case is not going to cost even 100 billion, right? Uh, not even 1 billion. So you see like, that's crazy. You, you can launch an ISS size space station in a single launch. That was our main idea a single launch playstation that big it can never be as expensive so it's going to be at least two orders of magnitude cheaper even if you mess up the production and all of that so that was our base idea and uh yeah we started that and a lot of people really found it very interesting and while we were working on that um that was also the moment that people felt alienated and um we as a community with all the most active people from all these different servers now thought, said we have to come back together to get this creative chaos again with all these different projects and one server. Um, and and uh, that's also the same time that uh, the three of us were chosen by the most active members to lead our community. Um, and that's when the Orbital CAN became part of the Nexus Aurora main server again, like all the other projects that you have seen. Um, and to come back to the IAC, the International Astronautical Congress in Dubai in October of this year, we were talking about goal setting and the fact that we were looking for kind of a new goal. So um, someone found out that this, this is the biggest uh, space conference there is in the world. Uh, so um, then we have some really enthusiastic members and they said, yeah, you should apply. And we were like, no, we're just a group of amateurs. We don't know what we're doing. Um, but then we just started writing an abstract, which you need to do in order to present and to write an eventual paper. And while we were writing that abstract, which is just a half a page long, about this orbital can station architecture, we noticed two things. And that is that uh, in order to live healthily for long duration mission in space, you will need gravity most likely. And we wanted to find out how we can do that within a space station of this diameter, eight meter diameter, uh, which turned out to become uh, the LARGE, which is uh, an acronym for a large artificial rotational gravity environment. Um, we can talk maybe about that, but uh, th that's a very specific project uh, proposed by uh, one of our members, uh, Marzan Wright, who's a project lead in that. So we wrote an abstract for that as well. And then we wrote the third abstract, which is the next generation birthing port. So normally you have a docking port, uh, but a birthing port is you need the help of a robotic arm to connect two modules together. That's called birthing. Um, and uh, we are creating a birthing port that has a hatch that is uh, two meters in diameter and not the 800 millimeters or 1300 millimeters that are currently in the space station design. So it's like a really next generation thing. So we wrote three abstracts and then we just hoped that one of them maybe would be accepted. And uh, a few weeks ago, we heard that all three will be allowed to present in Dubai. And that is really, really awesome. So that was another, um, yeah, really a nice, nice uh, moment for our community. A lot of positive 
positivity and a lot of people who are now uh, yeah, actively working in all kinds of sub-projects within this orbital CAN station. Some people are really focused on uh, the, the ECLIS, uh, which is the Environmental Control and Life Support System, for instance. Others are working on structures, etc. That's. I mean, so are, are you going to, because they're all part of the same project, aren't they? The, the, the orbital CAN has the large inside it as, as, and, and they join together via this birthing mechanism. So are you going to present it as one great big monolith of a presentation or, or will it be three separate presentations that come together as a whole? They're probably three separate presentations. Well, we, we're going to present them as three separate presentations, but they very much rely on each other. Um to make sense. And even that, they, they they only make sense in the context of next generation launches. And when we talk about next generation launches, we feel there's only really one being constructed at the moment, which is Starship, which none of this makes sense without that. So um, there are three projects. There are actually more because it, as we've progressed, we, we realize there's more to it. Um, and as you get more into detail, there's a lot more, but this, I mean, presenting three is already a, a big step for us because it's, it's quite a major, major conference. Um, so I, we will present them separately. We, we're not exactly sure, and, I don't, and we're not sure because the conference hasn't made it clear yet in terms of what the presentations will be like. They are asking for video formats, um, which means we'll probably do one 10 minutes presentation for each one of them separately. Um, we're hoping that it's possible that that there's a live presentation that we can all actually get there, but you know it's still uncertain times at the moment. Um, and if we can present live, it'll be quite nice because it'll be the first opportunity that a lot of us from Next Aurora can actually you know meet up and actually get to know each other outside of the, the, this current Discord. And the, the <laughs> what happens if you don't get on? <laughs> Well, we're there. We're going to be there. It's, it'll be nice to see each other, though. I think it'll be a yeah, nice yeah. bonus to actually like know what we look like in the real flesh. Yeah, I'm scared of I'm scared of meeting people now. <laughs> it's like, what, what happens if we don't get on? It's, oh it's yeah, very funny. I, I, I think there's enough conversations between us that we'll have something to talk about. Yeah, true. Uh, tell, tell us a bit more of the, t the technical details for some of these projects. Then the orbital cam, the uh, artificial gravity, and, and, and the, the birthing cam that you just described. So what? What are the what do you think of the the primary benefits that the very large fairing on Starship brings for the autocan when you have that much extra volume? Yeah, I, I'd like to talk because I, I spent a lot of time. So I'm I'm deeply interested in how the economics of various things affect, like everything's connected, right? And what Starship does, it brings two things on the table. It brings a very very large volume, and it brings a very high app mass. So Big volume, big mass, but it does it at a low cost. Now, the biggest thing which which it changes, um, and if you go through a lot of documentation of how other other like projects have been developed through history, is people tend to spend an inordinate amount of time making a widget, a thing, super, super light. And they would engineer that thing and spend tens and thousands of hours engineering an item so that it'll be small, it'll be compact, it'll be bulletproof, it'll be light. I mean, it needs to last for 40 years and nobody needs to maintain it. All these things are like crazy, crazy considerations that, that they used to go into designing these things. Now, the big change that's coming up is suddenly we can put 100 tons up for, the, for 
like crazy low costs. I mean, say it's $20 million for 100 metric tons. Uh, to, to give you an example, you can launch uh, the heaviest tank that America operates. Uh, you know, you can shoot that thing into orbit for, for less than the cost of the actual tank. Um, it, it changes the economics of things. So that has allowed us to say, okay, fine. Not necessarily what is the best solution, but what is the easiest solution? So we're looking at a lot of things about how do you produce these things? How do you manufacture them cheaply? Um, not perfectly, but how do you manufacture them cheaply so that we could get all these things together with minimal cost? If something goes wrong, there needs to be a lot of, um, well, there has to be redundancy, but we're we're also working with redundancy of scale. Um, and you can... <sighs> You can sort of over-design things and expect it not to break simply because instead of going for 1.3 millimeters of steel, we're just rounding it off to say three millimeters of steel, and that's okay. Um, if you take, for example, if you look at how a lot of the, the modules uh, that are in the International Space Station are made, they each panel, like uh, they of the module, they've CNC'd out the aluminum and they've probably spent millions of dollars engineering and testing each individual component. And this component will end up weighing 1.3 kilograms at the end of the day, it'll be this huge thing. It'll cost a million dollars just because of the amount of engineering and time they spent on it. And we are saying, well, is that necessary if we had three times more weight to work with or four times more mass? Um, and that's changed a lot of things. So obviously we're conscious of mass, but our details are specifically around, is it easy to build? Is it bulletproof? Like, what happens if it breaks? Um, is it easy to ship around? We have a lot of discussion in terms of, because we're working on an open source idea, can other people make these things? That's very important for us as well, because we feel that, um, like, one of our models is if, if we can get more nations involved in manufacturing these things, then you could give a space program to Nigeria, for example. And they can build a part of a space station, not necessarily the whole thing, but a part of it. And we'll provide the specifications. And they can say, well, let us build a part of this. And we put it on another part that was made by China or, or you know, uh, uh, Italy or whoever else. And we can put this in the, on a rocket and you can launch it for relatively cheap. Um, and there's a lot of benefits to standardization, which is one of our main targets is to build standards. Um, and if I quickly had to discuss about standards, one interesting thing about the International Space Station, one of the big issues is that the components are made by so many different companies and they're highly engineered components where they'll have a certain screw, for example, that is only used on a specific tool made by a specific company 20 years ago, but that company's gone bankrupt. And now NASA needs to find a way to manufacture a, just like a screw. And it sounds stupid, but it's the problems that they're sitting with at the moment. So we're spending a lot of time reading up what was done at the International Space Station. What are the what are the issues they sat with, and we're now looking at resolving those on as simple way as possible. And this uh, connects back to your open source position, surely, doesn't it? About yeah. avoiding proprietary solutions and products, and the the data for that being available over over a longer term for replacements and maintenance, surely. Yeah, um, and also if you look at, for example, just something as which should be as simple as a space toilet. Uh, <laughs> I think like uh, the the latest iteration of a space toilet uh, cost eleven million euros or dollars uh, each. I think it's like twenty two or twenty three million for two space toilets, right? 
yeah, um, that's also because it is uh, the size of a football, I think, or like two. It's really, really small. And uh, that's because it has to be light. It has to, everything has to be perfect. We are thinking about like, okay, let's make it five times as big. It's not gonna work. It's not gonna be a mass of 200 kilograms and, and cost uh, 10 million plus dollars uh, each. What if we can make it five times as heavy? Because I don't care. I only need two of those in my space station. And uh, if it is not uh, maybe 500 kilograms, but maybe two and a half tons, we have that mass in our space station to work with uh, in our design. What happens then? What if you use uh, custom or, or uh, off-the-shelf components, right? Uh, instead of uh, a screw that you have engineered yourself, why would you do that, right? You do that because the other screw is maybe twice as heavy as you need it, but we don't care. That That's the base way of thinking. So can we make a toilet in the thousands or tens of thousands of dollars instead of 10 million? We think in theory it is possible. And uh, combined with everything Sean just said, and the fact that you can make things more cheaply also means that you can create more iterations of that same product. So you can learn actually in practice. Uh, so we're more of the uh, let, let's let's try and let's fail and then let's try again uh, kind of mentality. And that only works if you're not building um, hundreds of millions of dollars for each product, but uh, you create them as cheaply as possible and work from there. And that represents a, a larger change in the space industry as well, not only with, with us, but with that, you know, industry professional, is that we're now looking at trading off the cost of uh, building to the cost of launching. And the cost of launching, as we've seen, is historically going way down now that we're, we're seeing reusable launches, now that we're seeing large ships be built that you know are also made to be reused. The cost isn't now necessarily focused on we have to launch as little as possible because every pound going up there is going to be uber expensive. With the cost going down, we can now afford to send more launches and sort of send bigger or and less, you know, proprietary stuff. So this is good because potentially not only are we making something a lot cheaper, but the cost of launching it is a lot cheaper. So the overall cost goes down for, you know, what ends up being potentially a better better result, a more easily designed and more cheaply designed and a more uh, robust product. I mean, I, 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 that's the point I was about to kind of make. It seems to me that, I mean, having sort of talked about the space industry now for like six or seven years and, and you see what Elon Musk has done, it seems that his kind of philosophy has been hyper-influential on people like you as well in terms of, you know, he's got to that massive reusable rocket by a very similar approach in terms of let's just bash it together in in Boca Chica, for example, uh, and and that that kind of design philosophy is is rubbing off further down the river with people like you. Is 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 that a good assessment of 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 the para? It's a paradigm shift, isn't it? It's a paradigm shift. I, I would certainly say so, and uh, also I would like to just say that. Um, the fact that things are allowed to get broken and uh, be tested, and uh, that doesn't mean that the end product is worse. People said that about SpaceX uh, Falcon 9 rockets. They were like, oh, you're going to reuse, it's not going to work. Of course it worked. But uh, then they said, you're not reliable enough. They're now one of the most reliable um, uh, rockets out there. And people are saying that now about Starship. Like, oh, you're failing so much. But the failure is the quality, I would almost say, uh, because you are willing to fail. 
it's like fail, fail again, fail quicker, those kinds of uh, nice uh, sayings uh, of uh, some famous inventors. Um, but then you at least know what works. And if you have to design everything perfectly before you do the first launch, because A, it is extremely expensive, but that is actually, <laughs> it is expensive because you don't want it to fail. So that's like a, a paradox uh, in itself, maybe a little bit. Um, and yeah, we are trying to take that other approach. Like how can you make it as cheaply as possible, fail a lot, and know where you can maybe shave off those kilograms uh, afterwards. Um, and that's in, indeed, I would say, I would see this as a compliment because people like us, we have not seen the moon landings. Uh, we are of that generation who are like, oh, I was just too late for those moon landings, but I really, really want to see those Mars landings happening. So how can we do this? Not in 30 years, like some of the old space companies are saying, like, yeah, we'll see in 30 years or 20 years um, if we can ever get people there. But how can we speed that process up as much as possible? And we feel that this approach that you indeed described, uh, Matthew, is uh, the best way of getting there as quickly, but also as economically as possible. It's interesting to think about the conversation we had uh, earlier about the comparisons of decision making and uh, organization structure, and that, uh, you know, we talked a bit about uh, the agility of a, of a company like SpaceX led by one person versus large and wieldy organizations, historically like the state or very large corporations. Perhaps what, what the Nexus Aurora project offers is, you know, at the risk of sounding like a cliche, the sort of third way in which there's an agility there. But again, uh, a large-scale organization still behind it with lots of knowledge, lots of knowledge as well. It's very so interesting. what's interesting is um, the so so any any development I think to to get to a mature product needs a lot of um, a lot of experimentation, and, and we we do this with our consumer products um, without realizing it. Uh, the, the, the keyboards or whatever is sitting in front of you has gone through probably a million generations through different companies manufacturing these things over time. And before it gets to where you are, I mean, you're sitting with the millionth generation keyboard or the, the 20th or 50th generation smartwatch, whatever product that you're sitting with, because the launch industry has been so expensive, there's been very slow iteration. Um, it's and and what 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 engineers have been asked to do with the rocket launch uh, industry is to go from to say, well, we're at Oxwagons now, but we want you to design the 2020 BMW, um, and and figure out all the development and all those mistakes. And that's obviously really difficult to do. Um, and I think that's where we why we got to where we are. Um, what's interesting with our community is we because we're most of our ideas at this moment are, are virtual. So we've been throwing ideas around and uh, the large orbital can, one of the reasons why we started it is somebody else was talking about a solution to building large um, orbital stations using the old space mentality. And some of us, we like, played around with our calculators a bit and, and did some economic, just, just did a bit of math and realized, well, hell, if you, if you like ignored the old model and and started including the new economics that we could be seeing because nothing's guaranteed yet, but Starship looks like it's, it's, it's going to happen. If you look at the new economics, the old model doesn't make sense. We don't have to spend so much time and effort designing this perfect thing, which is what somebody else was proposing. A really, really good solution to something. It's, it's like an amazing solution, but it's overly complicated. 
Now, if we had to go back to, to how things were, were always designed is we, we start with simple things. And then as we figure it out, we, we build onto that simple thing. So the idea behind this, of this orbital plan is it's as simple as we can get. And once this thing gets launched, then you can say, well, we know from experience, let's, we need this little detail fixed and we can improve that detail there. So you're sort of following this natural development process um, opposed to having to figure out every single problem along the way. And I think that's really what's, what we're trying to achieve is to simplify things um, because we have to. I mean, we're, we're, not, we're not highly, we don't have huge budgets and, uh, to get the world's best engineers. So we, we have to get to, the, to a simpler solution. So it's, it's interesting how you talk about earlier on about, uh, about mass and lifting capacity, because I must admit, my first reaction when I looked at the orbital cam work is that uh, it, it, its primary goal seemed to be to, to fill the fairing of the largest starship and to make the most of the greater volume. Uh, so I was interested in questions about lifting volume versus mass. And we, we, we seem historically, because of the mass challenge, to have spent a lot of time lifting space into space, if that, if that makes sense. And yeah. uh, uh, and I've certainly seen other uh, recent examples where uh, that uh, a larger fairing or a greater lift capacity might turn into something that is full of mass and unfolds to a greater capacity, inflatable, for example, or pieced together in some in some respect. But you seem to have gone for the for the volume you're filling out that fairing. Um, well, not not completely, I should say, Rob, because we started exactly with that thought uh, because we said like, okay, we have a thousand cubic meters. Let's make sure at least we're going to get a thousand cubic meters up there, right? But the top of the fairing is really like. Uh, narrowing down, which is logical, like a bullet. And we were trying to figure out different solutions to fill up that part as well without creating a complicated manufacturing, uh, difficult to manufacture uh, design uh, because cheap is very important to us uh, as well. So we actually ended up choosing to fill only two thirds of the fairing for now uh, with a pressurized volume because it is a single volume, so you can choose to design one type of manufacturing technology, maybe similar to what Starship is using as well, with just a roll of steel. You make it a single diameter, and you can have you actually have two components in the whole station module, and that is what we call an end cap, which has the bursting ports in there, and the cylindrical center section of the module. That's it. Because first we had like, okay, we have two different components because in the top you have fewer, uh, uh, a small diameter. So how do you do that? And we were thinking about solutions and they were like, no, we're going to do it as simple as possible. Even if that means that you net, you get uh, maybe uh, two thirds of the volume that you're using because you're going to need to send up stuff that is in the unpressurized volume anyway, like solar radiators, uh, but maybe even like, um, uh, if you want to do an EVA, you want to uh, um, be able to have a specific module that can evacuate the airlock. But that airlock doesn't need to be 600 cubic meters, right? Uh, it can also be uh, maybe 20 or 30. So those kinds of things become possible because we leave a little bit of room open in the top. And um, yeah, it's also something that we realized along the way. You don't need to fill each cubic meter. So it sounds similar to your cylindrical housing on the Mars Society project, which had, I think, that same concept, didn't it, with the end cap and the and, and this tube? Maybe, uh, yeah. You, I, 
I didn't even think about that. Sean neither. <laughs> That's a good yeah, one. Yeah, you had two components for that too. Yeah. So, so is it imagined as a single uh, or, um, space station, a single single space that works as works alone? And how does that how does that manage things like redundancy and safety in the, in the way that say ISS does between modules if there was a problem? But the nice thing about that is that uh, we could design um, even the life support system to have within a single launch station, have two components of each one, right? Because we just say like, okay, if we make it as cheap as possible, why don't make two or three? Like a Falcon 9 has three flight computers. Uh, we at least need uh, to have a life support system that has a redundancy in it, if it is a single launch. But if you even add more modules to it, so you start to get a really large station. Um, we are using the universal berthing mechanism, which is the name of this berthing port we're designing as an open source standard, um, to create it also as a sort of a plug to connect all the air, water, also wastewater, but also radiator fluid, if anything goes wrong, all of those are connected through this berthing mechanism. So you actually are creating a double redundancy in that case. A topic that I find really interesting um, is, as I said, I, I, I enjoy modeling like what if situations going a bit ahead. And what I find interesting with the economics of uh, these orbital cans is if we want to if we want to get people into into space like what's the cheapest way to get um to create space tourism like what does the space tourism model look like and what we find out what's interesting is the limitation of space tourism is not actually in the cost of the space station it's the cost of the the individual flight tickets so what we find if we had had to simulate uh, what that would look like with a Starship costing, say, $20 million. If you had two of these cans put next to each other, and so an orbital can, it's or any, like the ISS even, its limitations on how many people it can take is more so to do with its ability on life support side than its actual physical volume space. So one can that we're designing is our, our um, life support can handle between nine and seven people. But that actually brings an interesting problem because between nine and seven people, if Starship one day becomes human rated, which it will eventually, when it becomes human rated, to put seven people on that Starship is actually a bit funny. I mean, you can probably put a hundred people in there. So the limitation is you want to make a, a space station that can handle no less than 100 people. And that is how you minimize the cost of space tourism. Because if you look at a couple of years, like, after five or six years of utilizing the space station, the per ticket cost, the, the, the cost always goes to the flight, getting the individual there and getting him back. Not really in the space station because that gets divided by all the other people that, that got there before the time. So we imagine that over time, these cans, these orbital can stations, will be a collection of about 15, 20 of them uh, that are working together. And there's a lot of redundancy in that. And that's one of the things this universal birthing mechanism really has to accommodate that because it means that it's sharing resources between these, these different orbital can stations. If life support fails in the one, you've got the redundancy on the others that are attached to it. If radiation radiators fail, you've got redundancy. So it's, it's one of the, the technical things that we, we're trying to solve uh, really quite well. We spend a lot of time on this is how do we, how do these things daisy chain together and how do they work? How do they look? 
and it, it becomes really interesting because the, the orbit that you choose has an influence on this. The, uh, the, the solar panels that we choose and the orientation and all these different things um, have an effect on the economics of what a future tourism space station could look like. Um, so yeah, it, it was really, it's a really interesting uh, problem that you end up solving and, and new problems end up emerging when you start asking these questions. It certainly sounds like a very different uh, model from a tourism point of view to say the, the Virgin Galactic <laughs> model. <laughs> Well, the, the interesting thing is that the Dragon spacecraft is already creating like maybe 50 million US dollar uh, per person tickets now. And uh, they're sending only four instead of seven maximum people in a crew Dragon now. But even then, if we are to rely for any kind of space tourism on a crew Dragon, it is not going to work, is our assumption. Because if each ticket even becomes 25 million, that's still 25 million. You're not going to spend a week in space for 25 million as an average person. We would like to get to a price of more like um, uh, Antarctic tourism, for instance. It is still really, really expensive. It's not for everyone, but it is there for a lot of people. And that means that we've done some calculations that you can easily fit hundreds of people Elon says a thousand, but it is possible. But if you want to do it comfortably, you can fit maybe four or 500 people in a starship. If it's just a ferry, which takes maybe maximum a day uh, to one of these orbital can stations, which is made of multiple modules. And as Sean said, if the price is mainly about the ticket price there, and you know that Elon says it's going to cost $2 million, we say maybe 20 or even $100 million, if you're dividing that by 500 people, it's going to be a lot cheaper than maybe a $400 million uh, SpaceX Crew Dragon uh, flight. So, yeah. And you're going to need a lot of space to fit all the Discord members on the rocket as well. <laughs> aren't you? Ah, you know, yeah, 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 how, yeah. How else can you decide who goes? So what's interesting is we've got a lot of students and I mean, a lot of them are very, like a lot of them are still in school um, and they're contributing to where they can and they're passionate and uh, I, I'm kind of jealous of them because the one thing that you do if you join our community, if you're involved, you are going to learn a lot of things. It's like guaranteed because we dive into topics and we're asking people like, hey, we want to know this thing. And people go do these deep dives. And, I, I, and I'm often a little bit jealous about these kids because I never had these opportunities when I was, I was a kid. And they are going to grow up where this becomes a norm eventually. And they are the people who are involved are building up experience and they could really get themselves there one day um, simply because of early exposure. Do you know what? I, I totally agree. I love that idea. I think when you hear about like really great invent, you know, those sort of times in history where things really turn on like a group of people that all sort of met each other for cups of coffee back in the day and things like that. It, this this is a similar sort of thing, isn't it? Where you've got passionate people that are, that are connected in in a certain space and it's and it's their sort of it's not their day job it's their it's their talking down the pub talking down the coffee shop type experience and yeah you're absolutely right i mean it's it's an awesome it's an awesome experience for someone who's yeah young and 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 a little sponge to suck up all the <laughs> all the kind of uh, you know other people's experience i mean it, it is really really fantastic i'm i would love 
to talk about the the large artificial gravity thing, but I don't think we're going to have time. So I think it would be good if some point, if if you're willing to do it, is come back another time to talk about about the art, maybe nearer the IAC where it's all a bit, maybe a bit padded out a little bit more. Because I just want to, what I yeah, really wanted to sure. ask is, is just one kind of sort of summing up question about where you see Nexus Aurora being in say five or ten years time. What what you kind of see it where it may end up and the same with maybe some of the projects whether whether some of these projects do you think are actually going to make it out of incubation into the into the real world so what i think at least what i'm hoping because um when you're deeply involved you you're, you're seeing all these problems that we're trying to solve um what i really really hope is that one we became a source of uh education and inspiration um uh, somebody i think i think couldn't actually use the example of Khan Academy quite a bit. Um, I, I, I'd like it if people see uh, uh, Next Aurora as almost a university where you learn about these things. It's where you get your first flight wings um, in terms of n- knowing about um, a lot of these engineering topics. Uh, because we, we do bring in a lot of people that are students. Um, we've had talk, we've already had talks with different universities around the world um, explaining some concepts and because the, the topics are different. It's, this isn't, um, the things we talk about aren't, uh, I mean, I studied architecture. I got my master's degree. None of this was taught in architecture while I was doing architecture for Stefan Mars. And it really changes your mind how you think about things. Um, that's the one side. And the other side, I really hope it, it actually becomes a place where we can funnel resources into ideas that actually, um, get placed on Mars. I mean, I myself got a new project that I'm just getting off the ground that I'd like to start testing next year, for example. And I hope to get this thing actually, because it won't work on the moon, but it will work on Mars. Um, we've got a lot of other projects. Um, Cameron's working on the MDRS, his, his robots, which I actually wish we had some more time to talk about, um, which are going, which which are perfect for, for going onto the moon. And what I'm really hoping for in say five years time is that it becomes uh, a, a, a proper incubator where we've got the funding and we can channel this funding into people with ideas to promote science, to promote really the purpose, like permanent settlement of these various planets and to bring more people in because we've got, and that's really, I think the, the, the important part about what we are. We've got people from every single country and a lot of people from third world countries that have no chance of getting this kind of experience um, in their own country, really. I'm from South Africa. We, we, there is no way I can get involved in the space industry in South Africa. It's, it's not going to happen because we don't really have that. Um, but we are, we're allowing people um, that could be the next Einstein, the next Elon Musk, that doesn't have a channel, who's sitting in India, who's sitting in South Africa, sitting in Nigeria, a place where they can actually get out there and develop real things. So that's, that's what I'm hoping. Uh, I think that's really interesting. I think that connects back to my earlier question to you about who and what you needed on the server. And I think you've hinted at maybe opportunities or chances to to, to connect to the global south more yeah. um, uh, uh, from a culture and a community point of view. Uh, so it sounds really promising. And, and that idea of a traveling university yeah. uh, almost is, is quite interesting too. So to sort of pull it back to an architectural reference for the all the architects in the room. I'm, I'm reminded suddenly of um, the work of, of Cedric Price and his pottery stink belt. You know, does, does that ring a bell to anybody? Perhaps a particularly UK bit of uh, architectural history, but it was a concept around using the train infrastructure 
to uh, to take universities to communities and the train system was the university oh, wow. and it would travel the network to bring education to people instead of the, the nice thing about us is that you don't need a train station or train uh, or even rails you only need a phone internet and yeah. uh, and that's the nice yeah. thing we're looking into actually uh, uh, we're talking to software company about uh, some some 3d software that um, that you can use through the cloud that you can not only use to create very advanced models with, but you can view them on your phone screen and interact with them and even design on your phone. And I would have said that's never going to work normally, but we have seen some demos and it's crazy. And that that kind of thing is possible nowadays. And that's insane because um, you don't even have to have a good computer yourself to work with advanced CAD software. That's where we are at right now. And the fact that this is possible, that we can share this, that people can even look at a model without owning the software, those kinds of things are, are like insane in democratizing access to knowledge, but also to be able to contribute to whatever it is that you're interested in. And it's a bit of this, this Google, book that I read, what would Google do, uh, um, about the long tail also a little bit, that a lot of people who are interested in space could very uh, had a very difficult time to connect to each other in the past. At this time, we have people from all over the world connecting at a very niche topic, which is maybe Mars colonization at first, and now the broader idea of uh, human space settlement in a broader sense. That's crazy that we have a thousand people there right now uh, thinking and working on that and yeah, uh, getting some happiness from that and contributing to this in a real way. At least we feel uh, in a real way. And the last thing that I would like to say at least is that what we also notice is that a lot of people learn besides engineering skills and all those kinds of things, they also learn a very important life skill that I always tell to new people who want to become active. And that is dare to ask a question it doesn't matter that it is that you think it's a stupid question. It is not because we are all here asking silly questions and trying to solve uh, uh, to get the right answer to those questions because sometimes we don't even know and we find out together. That's great. Um, but also, uh, if you dare to ask those kinds of questions and to ask for help, what we now see happening in our community is that students are asking their professors to help us understand topics. And those are university professors who are teaching aerodynamics, uh, I, I don't care, the, the, the craziest uh, aerospace technology, those kind of professors are starting, starting to talk to us, including industry professionals. And, and that, that is the point where we are right now. And that's so interesting to me because now you are going to get the people who really know their stuff, spending time educating us as a open source community um, so that we can really understand the things that we want to understand and uh, we can actually contribute in a meaningful way. And that is, for me, so exciting and so inspiring that I want to keep spending this much time and effort uh, in my free time uh, on this uh, on this uh, community. And it's, I really love that. I think the bottom line is if you're passionate, if you're curious, if you're interested in making humans have a greater presence in space, we don't care who you are, we don't care where you are or your level of education or your background, we'll come to you. We want to bring the resources to the people who want to help us and we want to help educate them and help give them the tools that they need to help bring these ideas and these projects to life from the most unlikely places. 
And I actually think that that's probably a silver lining of the pandemic as well, that it's accelerated quite a lot of that um, collaboration across the world. You know, like you were, you were saying earlier about the how the Zoom call virtually has no lag. I mean, it almost seems impossible, doesn't it, that we <laughs> that we've got uh, that we've got the Netherlands. In fact, Cameron, where are you? At the moment, I am in Georgia, rural Georgia. It's been really, really great talking to you. We must get you back on to talk before you do the IAC to talk about <laughs> to talk about some of these other projects. It, and, and I have questions about the Gravity Project. Yeah, too. I definitely have big questions so we'll about, about the Gravity Project. We'll, we'll be very happy to come back. And, and also what we hope, uh, because you're also uh, in our Discord uh, as well, is that if you want, you can yourself even become active. And we would really like you to... Uh, but what is also really great is that we hope that if we are back in a few months, for instance, um, that we have a lot of new projects even to talk about. And, and that yeah. is the way that we try to handle these projects. And even if you guys wanted to start your own project on uh, any interplanetary uh, content, feel very free to do so. And that's the spirit, at least, that we want to uh, yeah, uh, tell everyone about. Yeah, I, I was a little bit scared of asking Absolutely. silly questions, but I've realised that I've, you've 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 helped me out there. <laughs> it's it's that's a whole yeah. Mission. It's it's funny, isn't it? That the because I get this with students, you know, it's they don't want to ask silly questions, but but actually the sometimes the what seems like a silly question is if you can answer it, you suddenly realise that you yourself have have grown massively in your understanding of that particular subject because you have to get down to proper brass tacks don't you and often often questions questions really are the things that allow us to to solve problems um because most most problems start like or most new solutions start with a question because generally we tend to and i've seen this so often we we tend to be like especially in certain designs you'll be designing certain things and doing something the same way until someone comes and like but why is this company doing it like this? Um, we, for example, when we're trying to figure out what kind of solar panels to put on this orbital can, um, we we had, I mean, we've we've been in discussion with industry leaders and we've we've looked at other designs. We looked at what's what the International Space Station is doing. And the question, like, how, how is SpaceX doing this? And uh, it's a silly question. It, it sounds obvious, but... It, questions force you to actually think about things. They force you to dive into things. And then the, the answer surprises us often. Um, so questions are important. And I think it's there's, there's often, especially like what, what's nice in Discord is you sometimes, and it's sometimes a bad thing, but sometimes the nice thing is you don't necessarily know who you're talking to. So a, a high school student and some of these high school students are, are really are impressive in terms of their knowledge and, and what they know. So you don't know you're speaking to somebody who's actually 16 or 17, but he's giving you your, your discussion is you honestly believe he's a, he's a 20, 30-year-old guy with some industry experience. And they'll ask questions not knowing who I am, not knowing my experience. And it, it allows them to ask some questions. Um but generally, though, I think it's it's a global problem that people are afraid to ask questions because one, we're scared of of looking stupid. Even though you're speaking, like imagine working with a guy like Elon Musk who's got all this engineering knowledge, and being afraid to ask questions because you might look stupid. But quite honestly, why would you know what he knows? Um, so it's a weird thing that we don't like to ask questions, but it it's something that we really need to break down. And I think we tend to do it quite well. 
Uh, but we generally find that a lot of people are still a little bit scared to ask questions. It's that's always weird. I mean, so even Matthew uh, was a little bit scared, I heard. So uh, <laughs> it's a good feedback and learning experience for us, this whole podcast. Uh, if only that was the only thing that we learned from this, it is that we even need to spend more time in explaining to people uh, any question is uh, is uh, guaranteed to get an answer on our uh, Discord server. And this real spirit of, we didn't know anything about this a year ago, uh, and we learned by asking 2 million questions, uh, that makes us seem a lot more knowledgeable now, but that's because we have asked those questions. So start asking questions uh, instead of being afraid. And, and you guys as well, of course, uh, feel very free it's, to do so. It's a, it's a great test of a healthy community, isn't it? I think if you can ask a silly question or what you think is a silly question. Yeah, yeah. You. Do you and feel safe enough to ask that yeah, question? Yeah. yeah, you should be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can, can you ask a silly question? And can you click on a link without hesitating? <laughs> that's another good one I've, I've seen that put forward before as a test of a healthy online community can I click on a link because ah, I trust the people that are posted yeah, it that's oh, interesting that's, like that. yeah. that's it's, a, good it's one. a good one that. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, it's something I reflect on in, in, in our discord for the for the podcast and I, I absolutely can and it's a great sign uh, well thanks very much everyone yeah thanks guys thanks for having us thanks for having us yeah, thank you the interplanetary podcast is alive so what, what were your thought? what were your thoughts going through that Rob well, I, I really enjoyed the discussion about uh, about about community and about how to how to manage complex projects, and um, the, the, reflecting on uh, how their process might be a, a, a sort of third alternative to the way the sector often runs between large organisation or state uh, organisations or small agile team startups. This sort of third way, the almost grassroots, bottom up process. That they're crafting with this uh, community is is absolutely fascinating, um, but they definitely seem to be at a bit of a threshold where they 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 want to pursue more projects and more members quite rightly, but uh, as they head towards that goal and get more people on board, then how do they keep managing that community in a healthy way, keep on top of uh, communication and discussion and decision making? That seems to be the real challenge for them, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, we, we, you know, we've I've, I've obviously we've talked about on the on the podcast different societies and different you know organizations that you can join and things like that i mean this this one does feel a little bit different i think because it, it's it seems to be technology based as in you couldn't have done this really five or ten years ago in in this kind of way yeah and yeah it's definitely interesting to reflect on the differences between an organization like this and so the, the history of the bis yeah for example yeah. And how it had to go about events and meetings and discussion and debate <laughs> yeah. you know, in a very yeah. different way. Well, yeah, and you know, you it would take ages for a piece of information to travel from one part of the world to another. Yeah. You know, and and you think that on that call there was someone in you know someone in South Africa, someone in Georgia, someone in the Netherlands, us yeah. two in England. Yeah. You know, and you think, yeah, that that uh, with no lag, and you can all talk as if you're in the same. Well I, I, well, I brought the, the coffee shop analogy into it, that, 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 that there is that, you know, getting the, together. The, the hope, the, one of the hopes, surely, is, is that they can really um, broaden that reach globally so that, it, so that it's, it's, it's abundantly clear from the, the work and the results they get that the, the, the cultural differences in the team members and the people involved uh, starts, to, uh, uh, starts to bring a really healthy mix to the... Uh, to the to the process, uh, uh, in in ways that perhaps the the the, the history of um, the space sector in Europe and the US predominantly 
um, uh, might uh, there might be more opportunities for people to get involved uh, from, from other countries uh, through that organisation. That'd be that'd be really healthy. So maybe if we get them back on, we can try and uh, talk to them more about some of their other members. Yeah, uh, uh, as well as the, the people who organise. I think it is exciting. I mean, if 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 I was listening to this podcast and I really wanted to do something exciting in space i think this would be a really really good place to start i think you know yeah. going to their discord server is is an exciting place to kind of be and see how you can contribute uh, yeah, it's, genuine... active. it's it's busy there's, there's yeah. lots of conversation going on even if you just did it for a month i think you could learn so much from the way it's organized i i i'm still very impressed by the way that it's organized and the way that they've that they've gone about it and you know, ser- there's some serious skills going on holding that all together. I think there, there is, there there is, and uh, and I think I just hope they can continue to attract people who are who are just as interested in that uh, the politics of organisation as the other work itself. Because yeah. I think you have to be engaged with both, and I think that the, the guys we, we spoke to clearly are they're as enthusiastic about the process as they are the, the science. And that's key. And for it, for it to continue, they're going to need to bring people in and encourage people to be continue to be enthusiastic like that. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like, it's like any business that, that a business gets to a certain size and someone has to empty the bins to the point yeah. where it has to be someone to be employed to empty the bins. It's 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 harder, isn't it, to to excite people with the bin emptying opportunity at the company? But yeah. but 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 there's all but there's always the bin emptying to be done yeah. <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> What I'd be really interested to see is uh, is how they're able to progress through events like they've mentioned, the, the coming up uh, event in, in Dubai, to see if they can actually find some backers and some collaboration that helps them turn some of the ideas they're developing on paper and digital environments into in, into physical prototypes and testing uh, and ideas. Because that, that's 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 where it really matters, isn't it? And that's uh, that, that, that's ultimately where um, rockets have to get built. Um, and uh, the, the flame end has to be tested, and that's the challenging bit, isn't it? They were talking about uh, these, sm- yeah, these small robots that um, in, in that and the MDRS, and I think that that could be that sounds like it's 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 the type of thing that's going to become a physical reality. Yeah, the automated farming one is that. Yeah, yeah I think I think yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. so and that, and that seems to have come about through the Mars Society conversation as well. Yeah. So, so that that was that was that was great to see an organisation like this that's, that's assembled through the process that competition, competition outputs themselves are a, a great body of work, but it's it's resulted it seems in a collaboration now between Mars Society and this group to potentially yeah. uh, do some some tangible tests, you know, on site wasn't it was it was that in Utah we're talking about yes 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 indeed yeah so I think that'll be a really interesting project to follow. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, the. Um... That sort of diversity of ideas, although it comes with its problems, that that idea of everything, all this being too dissipated, it also does give you that that feeling. And I kind of bring it up things like the the Lunar Society, where you've got lots of different people talking about lots and lots of different subjects, but all subjects are interrelated, aren't they? Yeah. That that you know, and that you know, I think it's. Maybe they're missing things like artists and and other thinkers as well. And we we talked. To, I mean, we did when we, in fact, on the, the the episode when we had we were on the same episode we talked about Nexus Aurora when we talked to the Martian House people. 
there was there, that was clear, wasn't it? That there's that there really is an um, a, a really healthy way of working is to have lots of different mindsets a- approaching problems. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was certainly came out in their Mars Society proposal that they must have had some arts practice based input during that uh, the development of the project because of the uh, the work they'd done with ideas around uh, icons on the surface of the planet that we talked about the, mm. the the tree of life and uh, was it the tree of life is that the phrase they used and uh, uh, and other iconic pieces of architecture that would uh, that would bring poetry and meaning to to your existence on the surface so clearly in amongst the thousand members you know, people yeah. bringing that discussion to the table which is which is absolutely key yeah well, I wonder if they can bring meaning and poetry to a space station Challenging, challenging. It is, yeah, it? and certainly the orbital cam project that they talk they talked about is a, is a very straightforward piece of engineering in many respects, and that's the goal, isn't it, to get it back to a very simple, cost effective uh, can. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a well chosen title. Definitely, I got a uh, David Bowie connotation to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We didn't get to talk about windows actually no. in the orbital cam. No. Uh, well, that's, well, that's a quiz about that next time. No, I don't see any windows in the drawings for the orbital can. I think that they've got, I think they do have a viewing module as part of it. I've been right. reading through. Again, I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's so much stuff on their servers uh, that's growing all the time. It is, it's a really fascinating place to kind of look around. Even, even a board game. Did you see that bit? No, Red no. Stratos, original Nexus Aurora board game based around survival on the red planet. So the space for that stuff, yeah, the, you know, within that ecosystem, the, the space for these ideas, which is healthy. Have got any plans for this week other than working hard? <laughs> well, I'm going to be working with a client this week on a project that needs an observatory. Oh, actually, that is brilliant. So it's an observatory and a geodesic dome. Oh wow! So, so I'll be pulling out the Buckminster Fuller book for inspiration. So that should be good and. Uh, yeah, if anybody, if anybody from the Birmingham Astronomical Society happens to be listening, feel free to drop me a line. There might be opportunities for uh, future collaboration with this particular client I've got. Well, yeah, I've got, I've, I, I am thinking of getting my telescope properly housed again. Well, so I, might, I might be quizzing you about this because. Well, still... I've, I've been I've, I've been looking at various different uh, uh, small uh, projects, and lo- there's lots of examples online, of course, about how to properly mount and house and, and, and make impromptu. Uh, DIY observatory covers. Yeah. Um, so we might be looking at that as a as a as a project, uh, or we might be looking at some some sort of off the shelf back garden products as well. Um, but it'd be great. I'm really pleased to have a client who's it's part of a bigger project that will have lots of um, activities for uh, for different generations of kids um, uh, in the heart of Birmingham. And uh, uh, so the connection with the Lunar Society you mentioned earlier, yeah, is right there. Excellent. Um, so yeah, get in touch if you're in Birmingham and you want to help make an observatory. Awesome. Well, as I said before, if you if you uh, if you if you fancy joining us on the uh, on the old Discord, then it's uh, www.patreon.com forward slash interplanetary, or just go to interplanetary.org.uk. And if you go to interplanetary.org.uk, there are all the links to Nexus Aurora and all the stuff that they were doing. They've been sending us some links and via the Discord, bizarrely, um, to uh, put up there. So yeah. that's it. And I- and I hope this conversation's encouraged that because it's been all about online communities and how how healthy and positive they can be. Yeah, yeah, I, I loved your uh, an online community can be judged by 
how safe you feel when pressing links. Yeah, not not mine. I read that somewhere else, but I thought it was great. So yeah, for any podcast listening, please keep sending links. We can all just click on without worrying, which <laughs> which you all do. It is true, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's that's, we've got a great community. It's awesome. Right, yeah. that's it. Bye, bye, podcast.